Welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. This is episode number two. I'm Bill Whitson, owner of Cultivariable, and your host. This week I'm talking with Curzio Caravati of the Kenosha Potato Project. Curzio is probably more responsible than, uh, than anyone else for encouraging people to uh, appreciate the differences in uh, potato varieties and in also encouraging them to become backyard breeders and uh, produce their own varieties. Kenosha Potato Project is uh, is primarily uh, available through through Facebook as a Facebook group, uh, a large community with about 2,800 members, and uh, it's it's well worth joining if you're interested in growing or eating or or breeding potatoes. This episode runs a little longer than our first episode, and uh, I don't know yet exactly what the optimum length is going to be. I think I certainly have a preference for longer more involved conversations. And so we'll see if this, uh, if you like this two hour length, of course, since it's a podcast, you're not obligated to listen to it all in one go. You can start and stop as you like. Curzio Caravati, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Bill, for, for setting this up uh, for me. We have known each other for a number of years because you have been part of the Kenosha Potato Project uh, Facebook group for, for a number of years. And Actually, today is the first time that we're talking. It's really one of the best parts of doing this podcast is that it gives me an excuse to uh, to talk to people that I've known for a long time but haven't really, you know, gotten into more depth with. Fantastic. So go go ahead and ask questions away. All right. So tell me about the Kenosha Potato Project. What what is it? Why did you start it? How how did it begin? The Kenosha Potato Project has started more than ten years ago. In my head, while I was reading Michael Pollan, The Botany of Desire, um, this is a fantastic piece of, of work of Michael Pollan, and I'm suggesting that if you don't have it, you should read it. It's just fantastic. It, it deals with, with four crops, you know, starts with the tulip and apple and, and potatoes and marijuana that have change humankind and humankind have changed these crops and and as i was reading it and actually michael polan talks about him growing potatoes uh and um and how potatoes develop flowers and then then fruit and you can extract the seed while i was reading that I, my my brain just went wow what i did i've never heard of such a thing you know that's how i started thinking about potatoes as something that i should explore in the meantime I also became a member of Seed Saver Exchange. And as I was looking through Seed Saver Exchange yearbook, that, that the printed version of all the listings of the Seed Saver Exchange members, I discovered that a, a, a gentleman who lives in Maine by the name of Will Gonzal uh, was listing 500, 600 strains of potatoes. And I said, oh my God, What's going to happen with this collection once Mr. Bonzal gives up, you know? And, and I reached out to him, and I got some potatoes from him, and suddenly my collection of 10, 15 varieties became 200, and then 300, and now 400. And I keep acquiring new strains that people send me. Some of the Kenosha Potato Project members share strains with me. Um, I worked very closely with Sitter Exchange. I will come back because you're going to ask me other questions later that I, I, I'm sure I will be able to get back to explaining my relationship with Sitter Exchange later. But anyway, um, then 
Facebook came around and I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, I could develop something like a platform and I thought that I was going to have just the people that are, you know, involved with my initial group here in Kenosha and, and, and in this area, you know, I, I, sta- I started off sharing all these potato strains that I have with a group of people, maybe a hundred in 2008 and a uh, hundred people. And, and the next year I contact them all and I asked, so how did it go? And have you saved your seed? And they said, no, we ate them all. And I said, so <laughs> what part of seed saving did you get? You know, and, and, and that's where I kind of gave up on the whole local group. Um, there is still one gentleman or two or three people out of the, those 100 that are actually located here in Kanosh. And, um, and with seed service change members and with Facebook, now the group has grown to over 2,800 in over 100 countries. And it really took a global a global approach that, that I really like, you know. I, I believe that Kanosha Potato Project group on Facebook is should now be the largest blog in the world of people that are interested in potatoes, that are interested in potato breeding, not at the professional level. And at the professional level, I don't know that there is really is another another platform, you know, where the, where only professionals talk to each other. I don't know. You know, they probably have emails and phone numbers, but I, I, I'm not sure how, how much actual exchanges are occurring at the professional level, which we are not. You know, we are not, we are, most of us are not professional. So most of the real professional conversations would be way over my head for sure. Maybe not yours, but my, mine for sure. I, I would not be able to keep up with these conversations. But then again, you know, we always have a chance to learn something and <laughs> make progress. Absolutely. I, I, I think probably one of the greatest things about the Kenosha Potato Project is that it connects people with, with high levels of knowledge to people with, you know, who are beginners and, and everything in between. That's really, that's fairly unique. And, and what about beginner's luck? <laughs> Someone that has never done anything gets a seed, starts a vine, and harvests something that is fantastic, you know? They, they want, they have something that fantastic and everybody wants it and, and, and TPS the true potato seed is, is almost like buying a, a lottery ticket <laughs> you start the seed and you don't know what you're going to get but maybe you're going to get something exceptional of course you won't know for a number of years because you have to keep replanting those those tubers for a number of years before you really figure out what you have but but my my thinking is um, I kind of know Bill what you want to ask me so I'm just going to go ahead and just tell you something else that you are asking me. Please. Uh, you know, what is my background? Well, my background is in business. I owned a, a company in, in Switzerland that was into distributing uh, sporting goods, uh, a very specific, uh, almost niche market, um, American team sports. Um, and, and so I can tell you, it's kind of going to surprise a lot of people that know of me but don't know much about me. Um, I worked for uh, Rydell, Wilson, Rowling, Easton, Nike, uh, Under Armour, um, so many American companies that had products but no distribution for those products. Uh, Wilson is a great example 
Wilson at one, at one point had four different channels to sell products into the European market um, because Wilson makes um, golf equipment, tennis equipment, uh, inflatables, and American team sports. And, and at one point, they had four different channels because who's selling golf equipment will not be selling, you know, baseball nets. And I got into that, you know, I got into baseball equipment and football equipment. And at one point, my European operation was pretty, pretty large because I covered the whole European count, uh, continent. Um, it also helps that I'm fluent in four languages. I grew, I grew up, I grew up in Switzerland, uh, born Italian from Italian father, Swiss mom, uh, Swiss education. So Italian, German, and French came first, and then English and and. Of course, by speaking Italian, hablar español no es un problema, uh, porque el idioma es muy similar. Uh, and, and, and through my sporting goods career, I also got a job in Poland, so troche, movie troche for Polsku, resuming context, so that's my Polish. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and by Polish, then, of course, I understand Russian, I understand Czech a little bit, but this helps. This helped kind of form my my personality. Okay, I was born in Switzerland, so and people make fun of me. You know, they say, "Oh, you wish to be Italian, but really you're Swiss." I said, yeah, that's true. You know, I have Italian blood, but once you're born in Switzerland, you become you become somehow anal. You know, because that's just our nature. You know, everything needs to be clean and everything needs to be precise. And, and you know, that's not really the Italian way. <laughs> Italians are more artists. And, and, but I, I, I feel that I have a little bit of both, you know. Um, so with with my experience in, 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 in marketing and sales and my Swiss education and my knowledge of languages, bringing that to the table, you know, of course I lack uh, any education in horticulture and I lack any education in, 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 in science. So, you know, when I hear you talk, uh, Bill, about uh, God cells that should be counted to figure out uh, the priority level of a, of a strain, I'm lost. You know, I don't know what that means, but there, there, there are colleges that are close by. Actually, I have two colleges, Carthage College, who has a, a greenhouse and scientists and and, and uni, University of Wisconsin Parkside uh, who has a sustainable living department. Uh, Cottage College is a little a few seconds more than two minutes from my house, and and Parkside is five minutes in the opposite direction. So I'm smack in the middle between Parkside and Cottage College. And I am reaching out to these institutions, and little by little, I'm creating a relationship with them, and and that's how my operation here is going to to develop even further because I have all this material, and I'm working this material by myself. So that includes uh, my garlic collection, my shallows collection, my chestnut collection. All of these collections that I have are being farmed on about three acres, and all by yourself. By myself, yes. While I have two other jobs, so this is not my <laughs> kind of a hobby, you know. But I, I'm so blessed that uh, I can do whatever I want every day. So I, I have my, my number one job. I'm an esthetician at skincare, 
um, I, I, I serve ladies who come to me to look 10 years younger and they do a great job. Um, and I am also a founding member of uh, Kanosha Harbor Market, which is uh, one of the biggest markets in the nation. We, we just made the Bon Appetit magazine uh, top 13 in the nation. Do those two things fit together? Do you offer potatoes at the at the farmer's market? I used to, but now that I'm the manager of the market, I can't, you know, my main role with, with this, I'm an employee of Harbor Market. Someone may, may be interested in thinking the importance of farmer's market in a moment where almost all retail operations are in trouble. You know, you may have you, you 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 may not have thought like two years ago that the Toys R Us was going to shut down or or now Boston store is shutting down. Retail operations are in big trouble because more and more people are getting whatever they need uh, by mail delivered to their door and that includes food. But people are really starving for information on how to use produce and how to cook it and, and what's the difference between a blue potato and a, and a yellow potato and, and, and only the farmers are going to tell you that. So that's why farmers market are keep getting larger. And we started, we have a method of counting, you know, people that go through the market and we were like 750 to a thousand people 15 years ago when we started. And, and, and now we are reaching 15,000. That's amazing. And, and, and the market and the market started you know with 30 tents and now we are at almost 200 tents wow that's it, farmers markets to tie it back really to the topic of this podcast which is freelance plant breeding farmers markets are incredibly important because of course the the products of smaller plant breeding are not going to appear at your local chain grocery store the only place you're going to find those is at a farmers market so they're incredibly important because without them you know, these minor crops and these these newer, smaller varieties simply aren't going to get any exposure anywhere. Mm-hmm. And we are set up in a way that we operate like as a business incubator. So someone that has an idea and wants to try something, the farmer's market is the least expensive way to test your, your things. And we have some farmers that are really open to start growing different things, you know, while the big commercial operations would say, well, you know, how am I going to get the seed and, and how many acres can I plant? And I, you know, one, one of the things that, that uh, I'm the most proud of is my relationship with Seed Saver Exchange, because they share with me uh, the database of all the material that they have in vitro in the lab. And I discovered peach blow which turned out to be white peach blow, but still, you know, it's a potato of 1865 that they had in the, in, the, in, the, in, in the lab and they didn't even know what they had. So I was able, and because of my, because I live so close to, um, to Sturgeon Bay, in fact, I am about this week, this week I'm going to book my, my room and, and because I'm going to spend a couple of days with them, um, Every every year, every other year, Sturgeon Bay hosts the meeting of the biggest brain in potato breeding, and 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 Bill, one one of these June's or, or end of May meetings of the future, I, I'd love to have you. You know, I'll I'll, I'll share with you and, and and I invite you to to join me. Um, 
I, I will be sitting with uh, with people that that you know the head of department of Cornell uh, now you know I, I can't think of all the names but uh, uh, University of Michigan and and and, and, and uh, Cornell New York and and Colorado State and, and and Washington State and all these people that are heads of the potato breeding um, in America all come together to the, the research station in Sturgeon Bay to, to talk about, you know, what Sturgeon, what Sturgeon Bay can improve and or how we relate, uh, you know. And I'm invited as the representative of Seed Saver Exchange. <laughs> you know, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's great. It, it, it would also be great to talk to you again after you've done that and get an, get an update on, on what you learned and, and what you heard there. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes, and all of this information is 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 available on on the NRSP six, whatever the code is of of the research station. All those documents are public, you know, they're published. Yes. Um, but but anyway, my relationship with them, uh, specifically Sturgeon Bay, uh, produces a, a a bunch of tubers uh, in in um, in greenhouses. Uh, their purpose is to grow stuff that is healthy and, and prevent any kind of contamination, but but they use chemicals, so those those potatoes are really not grown to be eaten. And I get them, you know, they send me stuff, and I grow it in my compost for a year or two, and then I report to them, I report back to them how I think that these potatoes taste. So that's what I do for them, and 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 you, and of course they are always willing to share whatever material they have with me. So that's a great relationship to have, and and through this relationship I found out that they have the ability of taking a sick strain and and have the USDA heal it back to health. And I did that first with with peach blow. So now we have peach blow healthy because the USDA he, healed it for us. And I and now I'm coming back to the to the farmers market. Now I have a farmer who is growing it out, and and hopefully one day we're going to have the the peach blow at the market again. You know, I can't do it because when I grow peach blow, I will have at the end of the season I have six tubers. You know, three are for me replanting, and three are for sharing. So you know, I'm not set up to ever bring this variety back to market. And that's where the farmers come in. I need to have f- friends at the farmers market that will say, "Yeah, I'll, I'll try that for you." And of course, I've seen that you you have also shared peach blow all around the country with different people now. So well, yeah, I, I'm trying, but but of course, you know, I only have one tuber to share. While people, if they are become member of Seed Save Exchange, they can place the order directly with Seed Save Exchange and get and get three or six tubers rather than just one. You see. Oh, so it's a variety that they're now offering as well. The peach blow, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't, I don't always know when they're offering a variety, right? I know they have a lot of varieties that are in vitro, but right, I... right, right. You have, and and me too. You know, it's a little bit difficult to figure it out because it almost seems that these are two or three different people that are in charge of different things. So I'm, as soon as I get my yearbook at the end of, uh, at the end of. January, early February, I just go through the yearbook and I discover what they what they have to offer. Um, but and I, I'm hoping that over over time, uh, maybe we're going to have a seed save exchange representative join us 
in the Canocho Potato Project group and then start sharing in advance what's coming up, you know. But unfortunately, that's, that's what I figured is that they really don't know what they have. So that's, that's, my, that's, my, next, that's my next point on the agenda. So that's the main reason why I'm taking two days off my work here and going to Sturgeon Bay, because there will also be another meeting, like a side meeting, with um, the uh, potato genetic uh, research group that is part of, of the research station. These are different people. And, and I'm trying to get them also to help look at all these lists and, 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 and find the pearls, you know, because I looked through a list of 600 names and I found peach blow. That's, that's the pearl that I found. But who knows how many more pearls we have. Sure. That if we don't discover them, they are going to fall through the cracks. And if we don't get them grown, you know, as tubers, we'll never know what we have. You know, having a plant in a, in a, in, a in vitro tube doesn't, doesn't do much. For the future, you know, we need to have it. We need to have a tool that we start eating again, and then people will to start saying, "Oh, yeah, we want this." As as someone who uses the the USDA collection a lot, I can I can tell you that those kinds of uh, descriptions of, of phenotype are really important because so so little of that information is available. You know, I might look through a, a thousand different listings for for different potatoes that are available with very few of them telling you anything about how they taste, how they look, what color skin or flesh they have. I mean, they can tell you in most cases where they were collected, and they can tell you perhaps the level of glycoalkaloids or, you know, how vigorously it grew or how that, much that pollen. That opens, opens a, 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 a completely different subject um, that perhaps we were not thinking that we were going to be talking about, but um, whoever is listening to, to us talking in, in this podcast, they, they may not understand what it means to grow out potatoes using botanical seed. How much, how much variation there is in any one plant, because you know, the, the, I'm told there is only one in a million chance that the seed that you harvest from a plant is going to give you the same tuber as the mother plant. Um, and and in, in um, for for the USDA um, Sturgeon Bay in particular, when they get from any potato that may not be the Solanum tuberosum that everybody's growing, you know, there may be a wild potato or whatever, they really don't care what the potato looks like or tastes like. All they care is to save their genetic. Um, the genetic fingerprint in in seed because then the seed can be packed and and it will say it will be viable for 50 to 70 years so once they have the seed in their in their cooler uh they 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 can get rid of those tubers you know and then maybe restart the seed 50 years later but in the meantime nobody really knows what those tubers look like how they taste because most scientists all they care is to perhaps bring some genetic material of those wild potatoes into, into modern potatoes to improve the cultivar. That's, you know, that's really the, the role that, that, that Sturgeon Bay is playing, making sure that all this variety is available. And also, this is a, a, completely, a completely different subject that I'm going to touch on now, is that in the past, Americans have been collecting potatoes in, in South America from all over the place. 
Colombia, Peru, and, and, and Argentina, and, and Ecuador, and wherever. Um, and these grounds are no longer available to Americans because, like, the Peruvian government is saying, wait, 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 you cannot just come and get our, the DNA of these potatoes, the genetic material, because it's ours. So they are not, they are not allowing um, people to go to Latin America and collect anymore. So whatever we have in Central America, we better keep this, because if we lose it, it's gone. We are not going to get it back from, you know, Bill, you may have been aware that, that, that someone in Colombia wanted to send us some material, and he, the farmer wants to send the material, but the Colombian government doesn't allow it. Right. There, there's still some sharing, of course, but it's definitely, it's not, it's not the, uh, the Wild West uh, that it once was, where we would simply send off groups of scientists to South America to, to tr- you know, go through markets in the countryside, collect whatever they could and bring it home. And that's too and bad. And most of the sharings is, is made, is through CHIP, you know, the, the is it CHIP, C-I-P? The International Potato Center? The International Potato Center is based in Lima, Peru, and they have, you know, lots of material, but they too, I'm not sure how they can acquire material locally, because the local government and CIP are two different things. Or perhaps also what, what CIP has cannot be, you know, they cannot add more, more stuff. We've definitely made it really complicated. We missed in the, in the past. So it's very important, I believe, I believe, and, and that is really the goal of Colossal Potato Project, the number one goal, and that's why uh, we, we now have a, a logo, and, and uh, anyone that was on Facebook, on, on, on a computer, rather than using a cell phone. Um, with, a, with a large computer screen, when you click on Kenosha Potato Project, you're going to have an image at the top that says, with a nice uh, picture of, of potato flowers, a potato berry, and a bumblebee. Um, and I decided to have the artist focus on, those, on that image because the bumblebee is the natural pollinator of potatoes. Potato pollen is kind of sticky. Uh, honeybees uh, will not be able to deal with that because you need an, an insect that, that vibrates. So the vibration of the bumblebee shakes the pollen off the flower. And that's how flowers get cross-pollinated and, and you get berries, you know. And um, many people, that I would say that 99. Nine percent of the American population has no idea about what a potato berry looks like, and uh, and we have a tagline under underneath the logo that says "Inspiring Future Potato Breeders," and and that is now, in my opinion, the main focus of the Kenosha Potato Project Facebook group. Someone gets there and says, "Oh my God, yeah, hmm, interesting," you know, uh, you start a, a a, a potato vine with a, with, a, with a botanical seed, and basically you are now a habit breeder. You are developing a plant that did not exist before. Uh, it's going to give you a tuber that is, nobody else has. And being a breeder is not only selecting what kind of seed you're going to grow because you potentially have a vision of developing a certain potato that that 
in my opinion, is very complicated. That I, I, I wouldn't be able to help anybody in in deciding why to select one seed versus another. You know, but but all I'm saying is, you you just pick something and you grow it out, and you're going to have a mini tuber in your hand at the end of the season. You're going to plant it again a couple of times, just to make sure that whatever you have also has because one of the perhaps the most important features of potatoes is how well they store. Um, Bill, you just caught me today in this. I, I'm taking a break from my from my potato job right now. Is pulling tubers from my cooler. I have a professional cooler where I where I store my potatoes, and every strain is put in a in a paper bag. Um, and I'm going through the paper bags of 2017 to pull the tubers that are going to be planted in 2018. And those potato bags uh, with the tubers that I don't need right now to plant go back into the cooler with the same strain that I harvested in 2016 and in 2015 and in 2014. As I'm doing this right now, I don't have any 2014 tubers. They are all rotten. But I have a couple of 2015 and lots of 2016. So that means that my in my cooler, I'm able to keep tubers for a minimum of eight months from the time I harvest to the time I replant, but also 20 months and 32 months. And maybe one day I will be able to report that I have a tuber that has stored for uh, 46 months or for 58 months. That, that, that would be, you know, more than four years. Um, Sturgeon Bay is telling me that they had a, a a tuber that they were able to store for 17 years. Not 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 a Solanum tuberosum. And that, that's a wide variety. Right. That would that would be Solanum jamesi, I think, uh, which is a North American native species that's particularly known for that. But it's really impressive with even domesticated potatoes to to get two years is 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 not it it not only gives you the ability to have a backup in storage in case something goes wrong during the growing season. But it also has the effect of, uh, in many cases, reducing the level of disease that might be present in those tubers. And that's exactly what I'm experimenting. So now, often when, when Seed Service Exchange asked me, I, I just got a, a, an order from a lady. Um, I'm, I'm very excited because she's a, she's a, um, she works at a university. So that, you know, someone that works at a university, I'm already thinking, oh, someone that will be, will be cool to participate in my research. You know, she's not in horticulture, she's in IT. Uh, but she wants Raudar Islenskar. Are you familiar with this tuber? In fact, I have some from you. And that tuber is one of the first tubers that were domesticated and, and grown in Scandinavia. They are reporting 1780, 1790, more than 200 years ago, they were growing potatoes in Scandinavia. And Raudar car is one of those that go back so many years and is extremely challenging to grow here because in Scandinavia they have 16-hour days, which we don't have, of course, you know, because we are, our latitude is so much lower. So I'm telling this lady... Um, I don't know if I have Rauda to share with you. You know, it's a difficult variety to grow just because of the of the day length that this plant requires. But as I was going through my 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 collection now, pulling tubers, I just found 
that I have around our Israel's car from 2017, one tuba to share with her, and a tuba from 2016. So I'm sending her a tuba that is eight months old and one that is 20 months old. And hopefully she is going to grow them both out, and at the end of the season she's going to tell me what came out, you know? I love to engage other people in the same kind of research. And, and at the end of the season, once you have two tubers, one that's 20 months old and one that's eight months old, you're going to have tubers that have the same age, but they should be kept separate as strain. And if what we alluded to, you know, that the, the, the cool, cool storage kind of heals the tubers, in theory, the 2016 strain may produce healthier seed tubers for 2019 than the 2017 strain. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's a it's a great experiment to be able to send people tubers of two different years to really see see how it works out. And, and if they are if if they have the analytical mind and, and a little bit anal like I am, hopefully they're going to keep them separate and well labeled. You know, all of my label labeling now is with metal. I don't I don't I don't waste any more time with anything that is metal. Metal with paint. Everything else has failed, you know. Plastic with you know with 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 uh, those markers and the sun hits it and and the name fades away and no no more everything it's <laughs> it's terrible it's it's a huge problem particularly for for breeding as well I, I grow everything on a grid so that I don't even have to label I know exactly how many plants there are in a row how many rows there are in a bed and so I have a coordinate for each plant so I simply don't have to bother with labels at all right but there is one one curveball that could come in, the helpers. Right. I have chipmunks, which harvest <laughs> tubers and replant them for me. Yeah, that's so, a big problem. <laughs> yeah, so if you have birds, that, birds will do that too. Seagulls are a terrible problem here. So that's why I, I, at one point, well, of course, my collection grew from 20 varieties to 60 varieties to 120 varieties, and and, and very quickly in my first couple of years, I had to give up planting in the ground. The spacing between the plants, I didn't have enough space. I, I just said, forget it. You know? And at that point, I discovered Gardeners.com in Vermont, an uh, employee-owned company that developed the potato growing bags. And I started corresponding with them. And I, I started... I am now recognized as a product researcher for them. They gave me deals. You know, at one point they even sent me 150 growing bags at no charge, you know, because I keep reporting back to them my, 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 my results. And you have a great video about this on your website as well, right? Right. And and um, actually I just placed a, a call for a small order and they, and they were questioning who I was. I said, really? You don't know? I said, <laughs> do you have access to... Um, do you have access to, to, to the web right now? Could you please do a, a Google search for me? And Google, John Deere Homestead magazine. And, and look at the, the article that they printed for me. It's six pages. Uh, the title of the, of the article is The Potato Protector. And in the article, you see a picture of my house and... and and a row of uh, puppy orange bags lined up in front of my house. When she saw that, she said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. <laughs> now, now I know that you are a researcher. 
I would think you would be you would be a name that they would recognize immediately. There's probably nobody who's done more free advertising. After she saw the article in in, in Homestead, um, in the in the Homestead magazine, she said, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I can see." <laughs> so you mentioned you you talked a little bit about um about how uh, potatoes perform for you with different day lengths. For example, the the radar is Lenskar didn't perform as well at your day length. What are the other ways that you classify the different kinds of potatoes you grow? You have so, a- yes, I, um, when, and, and this goes a little bit back into my, my history here. When I had a collection of 20 varieties, I would plant them, you know, again, my, my anal Swiss approach, you know, I would, I would plant them in alphabetical order, 20 varieties, starting with A and ending with whatever it was, R or S variety I had. Um, and at one point, I started noticing that some plants would develop much, much longer vines, or 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 or, or live or have a vine length, a vine life that was much longer. Uh, so I started thinking, mm, maybe I shouldn't grow them this way. Maybe I should create batches, and and that's where I'm at now. Now I'm at five batches. And the, and the five batches get planted one after the other. So the first batch that I plant is what I call high density. One of my research scopes are to find out in, 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 a, spe- in a specific size growing bag that has a, a diameter of 18 inches. So you can kind of figure the size of this bag, the 18 inches diameter. That happens to be the same diameter of a basketball hoop. See where my sporting goods knowledge comes back. <laughs> so basketball hoop is 18 inches, and and those bags are 18 inches diameter, and they will. And I have bags that are 14 inches, 16 inches, and 18 inches tall. I will always fold the bag back when I start planting because I don't want the side to kind of collapse inside the bag. So by folding it back, I give a stronger texture to the to the top top rim. Uh, I will place so much compost inside the bag and, and place how many tubers inside these bags. In the high-density batch, that's where my number of tubers per bag goes kind of nuts. I went all the way to seven tubers. I, I only plant whole tubers, not cut. So I take what I call a mini-tuber. There would be something that is between one and two ounces. That's the perfect size for planting. Larger than two ounces is too big even though sometimes I plant, I plant a, a tuber that is three ounces because I have it, so I use it. You know, I have more ice on, this, on a large tuber than on a small tuber. Going all the way to seven tubers, now I'm moving back to four max. I do not plant more than four tubers per bag in my high-density batch. And, and sometimes, some varieties, I only plant two. And I, and I find that two tubers of one variety produces a higher yield than five tubers of a different variety. You see what I'm saying? Every variety will produce different yields depending on how many tubers you have per bag. That's, that's kind of my research. And how much compost to load on top of the, of, the, of the tuber piece. So that's another piece of research. Because when you have a tuber that has a, a lot of vitality, the vine will crawl through a foot of compost and, and develop and set 
tubers at the nodes that you may have in one foot versus six inches. If you if you are only loading six inches, you are only going to have six inches of soft vine, where at the node you're going to have stones developed. If you let the tubers grow above those six inches and, and put more compost in, that's a complete waste of time because those vines that have grown out of the soil will harden, we're not going to be soft anymore, and you're not going to have stones at that height. So adding more soil on top, or what farmers do when they kill, is, is not the purpose to get more stones. It's just the purpose to protect those tubers that have developed closer to the surface and preventing greening. Right. This is very poorly understood. That's what I kind of try to explain on a video that is linked to Kanosha Potato. KanoshaPotato.com is my website, and I'm trying to develop videos. Of course, I don't have the money to pay for them, so I have this guy that's so kind. You know, he developed a couple of videos for me. One of them got, you know, over 40,000 views already. Eventually, over time, I'm going to have more videos where people can kind of understand what I try to explain. It's much easier if you watch the video to understand what I try to, what, what I try to explain now, you know. My take on how to maximize your yield by growing in a bag, in a container. When you have tractors and acres of land, what I'm saying may make no sense. So forget about it. You know, if you're planting with, with, with machines, what I'm saying makes no sense. But my message goes out to the gardeners and, and, and or even small farmers who want to experiment and want to try to increase their yields vertically rather than horizontally. And so who would you, re- who would you recommend bags to? What, what are the growing circumstances that make bags a, a, a good choice? Anybody that wants to do research and does not have unlimited space. Because with a bag, in a, I, I'm, I'm actually, I run an experiment with, with my high-density batch. Actually, my high-density batch, even though I'm not really doing any more of these experiments, but um, it started off with the idea that I only wanted 40 bags because I can fit 40 bags in 16, wait, in 8 by 16 feet, uh, 8 being the traditional length of lumber that you can buy from construction. So because we have so much need in America for construction lumber, eight foot length is the cheapest length that you can find. So eight foot wide by 16 long, I built kind of a, a, a frame that would work with hoop, hoops so that if you want to start planting early and protect your, your, your crop and, and, and you can fit you know, your, your 40 bags, 20 bags, with a number of tubers versus 20 bags with a different number of tubers. That's how I compared, you know. So right now I have 20 strains that are part of the high-density batch, which each have one tuber in one bag and two, three, or four in the other bag, and that's how I compare. So this was the description of the high-density batch, and now I'm moving on to the next batch, batches. Those would be the exotic batches. Um, tubers that I put in my exotic batch are tubers that require the maximum length of season. So after I did my high density, which is the one that I care the most of, 
I go to the exotic batch. That's the one that needs the longest season. That's why it that gets to be planted next. And though, and and I have two batches because I noticed that some exotic bat, um, tubers develop incredibly long vines, as long as eight foot, and some only are one foot. And those cannot be confused. Those need to be in two different batches. Otherwise, you're going to have eight foot long vine vines that are going to shade the shorter ones. Make sense? Sure. So that, that's one, two, three. And then I have two more batches, one that I call early and the other one that I call main. So potato catalogs are going to list three three groups, uh, early, mid-season, and, and, and late, right? And, and I didn't want to go into three more batches, so I, I, I'm going to only keep two batches. The first batch should be done within 100 days. When, from the t- t- time that the, the vine emerges to the time the vine is almost done should be about 100 days. That's early. And if, they, if the vines live for 110, 120, 130, 150 days, then they go in the main. And, and the early batch also, I have 100, 120 uh, puppy orange bags. That, those are the bags that you see the picture in, in, in the Homestead magazine. Um, that's the early batch. And because I only have 100, 120, I also limit the size of that batch to that number. So anything that doesn't fit in that number gets bumped up to the main, even if it's early. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's the way that I operate. <laughs> well, as long as as long as it's it's consistent, then you know then you know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And then I, I always compare. You know, if if I find if I I find a tuber in my early batch that is not ready to be harvested in August, then the next year it goes in the main. While in the main I have tubers that may be done sooner, but it may have been because of a drought or you know it's 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 really difficult to reverse back to early. But from early to main it's easy. Do you have varieties that are hard to classify that that change from year to year? Uh, yeah, I go back and forth sometimes. And 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 and, and really my biggest biggest interest and and. I must thank you and, and so many other members of the Commercial Potato Project uh, to bring my knowledge of, of, of breeding and different priority level. That, that is my, my next big thing. I, I, I was able to uh, meet uh, the new um, president of, of, of Carthage College and his wife um, at several local events and, and I'm trying to develop this, this friendship with uh, with uh, the head of of, of the college uh, to get them to to get this project going. You know, I I, I was telling her um, the most important thing that I have for you student for your community based learning. I have all this material. I I'm not 100% sure what is the diploid, what is the triploid, the tetraploid, the pentaploid, and hexaploid. You guys. Come over, get some vegetative material. You take it back to your lab, and you start and you start experimenting, counting god cells. That's what they should be doing, right? Sure. There, there are there are a couple of different ways that you can determine ploidy, and you can do it directly by counting the number of chromosomes. But that's that's relatively difficult with potatoes. It's certainly some something that anybody with a with a good microscope and some good microscope skills can do. But it's much easier 
to look at the the number of guard cells uh, or the number of chloroplasts that are in a guard cell, which is and a guard cell is what opens and closes the stomata on the bottom of the leaf. So um, so you can count the number of chloroplasts in those, and that you can use as a proxy to determine what the ploidy of that variety is, whether it's diploid or tetraploid or or more unusual levels. So that's something that probably anybody uh, in a community college level science class has the skills and equipment to do. So you could make you could make uh, a lot of progress with a relationship like that. Right, right, because then. Um, I, I'm I'm quite successful with 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 berry production. I have you know I, I'm I set like a goal for myself that that within a number of years I would like to have seventy eighty percent of my collection producing berries. If they are not producing berries, I don't really want them anymore. And and I'm thinking that I'm successful in producing berries because there is so much variety in in my in my plots here you know and so many bumblebees that are flying around i don't do any manual pollination myself and i i believe that that i may be completely wrong but i i believe that i have if i keep all my diploids together there is much more likelihood of of cross-pollination of 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 diploids that will lead to berries that if i keep them separate and far apart um, last year, I had I got from uh, from the USDA from G, from the gene bank in in Sturgeon Bay. I got this tuber. It's called Yoshi Six Y O F H I dash Six, and that tuber is what Sturgeon Bay recommends for for diploid pollen production. And uh, the first year I didn't get much, but last year it was incredible i virtually every flower turned into berry and i was watching uh, the flowers when when the plant was flowering i see these small wasps they, they were not pollinated by bumblebees they were pollinated by wasps and i recognize three different kind of wasps flying from flower to flower yeah, it's it, I, I I see very similar things. It's, it's I think it's really one of the mo- more fascinating parts of growing potatoes because of course, although potatoes are not native to North America, we it, potatoes are native to the Americas. So we have much we have pollinator species that are at least closely related to those that evolved along with the potato. So there are a surprising number of native pollinators that uh, that will work on on potatoes in my climate, and I'm sure you see the same thing. Most people, when they think of potatoes, they don't really, they don't really recognize that there are very many types. People might think of a, of a baking potato or a boiling potato. Most people don't know the names of the potatoes that they grow, except maybe in the case of, of Yukon Gold. But there are a lot of varieties of potatoes. Uh, why, why would anyone grow 300 varieties or more of potatoes like you do? Well, because you, you need to be a little bit crazy like I am to get to those numbers. <laughs> but but really, the, what you just said, you put your finger on something that is going to change dramatically in the future. Um, because it's the fault of the grocery store that actually displays three types of potatoes by color in America. In Europe, it's very different. Like in in, uh, in Switzerland and in Germany, potatoes are divided in A, B, C, and D groups. 
and and they come in bags that will say type A, type B, type C. And unless, rather than telling you that this is a uh, you know a potato that is starchy versus uh, less starchy, um, in 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 Europe you're going to have. A, a, a type of potato A that is good for potato salads and a type of potato C that is good for for mashed potato, you know, and a B mm-hmm. that would be in between and a D that would be something else. Um, but still, you really don't know what you have in the bag, like in America. And uh, I'm I'm thinking that that as we move forward, you and and more of um, grocery sales are going to be done online. Rather than when you order something online, you really want to know what you're ordering. So brand names are going to become more and more prevalent. Also, the genetic engineering that is happening, which I'm not opposed to. I'm opposed to GMO, which is a genetically modified organism where genes are inserted into a gene structure that is not potato but if you switch potato genes around you know in the lab i have nothing against it um and there is a company in in montana who is uh, uh working for for mcdonald's uh and they have developed a, a new t- type of potato um, that produces less sugars and and the sugars are when you fry a potato the more sugars in a potato will will, will produce um, cancer-causing uh, elements. So mm-hmm. I think that's a, a good thing, you know, that this genetic engineering is, is providing a potato that will not have that. Uh, now the name is, escapes me, but it's already a brand name. It's, it's innate, I believe. Innate. That's what it is. Uh, correct. So you're going to see... Now, innate is not a potato that is designed to be ever in grocery stores because it's really designed for processing. Uh, in grocery stores, we only see what is fresh. And, and, and by the way, if you don't mind me to use a couple of minutes of time to shed light on the potato industry as a whole. Please do. When I talk to potato industry experts, they tell me that 80, 90 percent, maybe 95 percent of all the potatoes that are grown in America uh, are grown for processing. A very small percentage is grown for fresh consuming. And, and when you are buying potatoes in the future, more and more potatoes are going to be sold online and delivered to your doorstep. Uh, you're not going to buy white potatoes or yellow potatoes. You're going to buy a brand name. That would be great. So we're going to see we're going to see people, you know, focusing on varieties more than they have in the past, I believe. That is what I am and when I'm talking to you know, one of the experts that I talk to is the editor of Potato Grower. You know, I had a Potato Grower magazine article mm-hmm. and while he was you know, interviewing me, I was interviewing him. I was trying to figure out from him, you know, where are we going? Because uh, I told you the story earlier about uh, the, 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 the white peach, peach blood, did I? Yes. That is a potato that has a chance to become a brand name because it's a potato that is clearly an old potato, you can tell. And, and, and I am, you know, when I talk to people about seed saver exchange, I often tell them, even farmers, you know, when I talk to farmers that come to the farmer's market, I always tell them, 
how are you going to be able to produce potatoes that people are going to pay a dollar fifty a pound rather than fifteen cents a pound? Right. You have to have a story. Any any crop needs a story, and the story makes the crop valuable. Now, if you are growing this white peach blow and you have the story attached to it, people are going to give you more money. And farmers need to figure out how they're going to be paying more money because McDonald's is not going to pay you more money. They need to sell their meals at a dollar a shot, you know. Whenever you go to McDonald's, they get a dollar, a dollar meal. Who's paying for that is the farmer that is under, under being underpaid for their work. So if you have to make a living at the farmer's market, you really need to develop these brand names. Like Magic Molly, you know, you can tell the story about the breeder in Alaska that, that developed this potato and Molly was her, his daughter. Or, or you know, the, that is kind of where we are going here. These 300 varieties, coming back to your question, you know, these 300 varieties all have names. And those names came from something, you know, and that's the story that most people are missing because they don't know why they have their names and what's the history behind it, you know, and, and, and why these potatoes have been saved for so many years, you know, because any potato has a specific use, the best way to cook it, you know, and that is what I'm thinking that down the road, the millennials that today are listening to this podcast are going to say, why why should I why should I go for a vinche? Okay. Vinche is a potato that was developed in Holland in nineteen ten. So it's been around for one hundred and eight years now. And and vinche is possibly the most popular variety in Italy for fresh consumption. And what do Italians make with potatoes? Gnocchi. Vinche is the best potato to make gnocchi with. So if you want to make gnocchi from scratch, vinche is what you should be ordering. People that are going to sell potatoes online are going to sell a lot of vinche because people are going to be talking about what's the best potato to make gnocchi with. Well, it's vinche and not, uh, you know, Russell Burbank or whatever. You know, those are great to make fries, but they are also used to make gnocchi because vinche is not available. But it will be available or something else will be available that will have a brand name they would be recognized for a specific dish. You see where I'm going? Absolutely. I, I think it's uh, what it's always surprising to me that that it's not only difficult to find out what specific potato varieties are are best used for, but but also that it's very difficult to even find information about what broad classifications of potatoes are best used for different kinds of cooking. Right? We barely recognize that there are differences beyond beyond texture in potatoes? Well, the, the, the test kitchen, you know, the American test kitchen that is that is located in, in uh, north of New York, I believe, I can't remember the exact name, but uh, they, are, they are part of this magazine, uh, cooking magazine, whatever, I can't remember the, the, the exact name of the magazine. They, they, they publish, you know, recipes and, 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 and best ways of preparing food. And, and often they mention you can go on a couple of other potatoes, but they are not going to name any specific potato that people are not going to be able to find because grocery stores don't offer those. But the time of the grocery store is on the same line as, as Boston store. Grocery stores are going to shut down. 
because as soon as people, more and more people are going to get their groceries delivered to their doorstep, who is going to go through grocery stores anymore and, and stand in line, you know? And, and, but in order to, to place your orders, you will have to be able to tell your, 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 your grocery provider exactly what you need. And, and that's why I think that more emphasis is going to be put on the history of each variety and what each variety offers, you know. And, and also, also my, my experiment with storage uh, will be appreciated, you know, because when I tell people that I have tubers that are 20 months old, they tell me, I can't believe it. Yeah, and I show you how they look. They look like I harvested them yesterday. If you store them correctly, they, they will not become shrinkable you know, all dehydrated. And by the way, a lot of potatoes that I, ha- that I have harvested last summer, I have in bags in my house, which I don't put in the cooler, because as soon as you put the potato in the cooler, starches become sugar, you know, and the, the potato is going to become much sweeter, not so good to eat. Then again, when you pull it from the cooler, apparently the, the, the sugars revert back to starch, but I don't want to go through that exercise. So just keep some potatoes, I I have I have them I had them in my in my house now for uh, let me count September that's uh, coming seven or eight months and and they don't look too too nice you know they look all shriveled you know but they taste great they're not spoiling you you have some some sprouting that that gets out of the tuber that that you that you pull off and and that's it you throw that you throw the sprouts away, you, I, I just wash it quickly, then I cut it up, and that's what I eat every day. Anyone that is really interested in the way that I eat, I will tell you, because it takes two minutes, I eat it the same way every day. I start with three spoons of olive oil, a little bit of garlic, and shallots or onions. I, I, I will glaze them, and uh, I will then cut carrots and, uh, and, and potatoes, and uh, mushrooms, and I just saute the whole thing for about 10 minutes, and then I will start adding water, and that makes a nice broth, and, and as soon as all my veggies are cooked, well, of course, a little few minutes down the cooking, I, I will add greens, uh, like uh, kale and chard and spinach, and, um, you know, and, and when pretty much everything is cooked, I, I kind of push all these vegetables on one side and I make a little pond of, of broth where I break an egg and that's my breakfast. One egg and half of the, those veggies and, the, and the, the, the second half is my dinner. Every day, same thing. Every day, same thing. Lunch is soup. No preservatives, no useless salt, you know. And that's my lunch. And uh, I just turned 60 and now... Counting 60 years of life, I can officially count 40 years without missing one day of work. Not one sick day in 40 years. Not too many people can claim the same. Your uh, your diet plan may become very popular. And my and my dynamite immune system is the result of hard work, because I'm really working hard at cooking every day, at sleeping a number of hours, at refusing to be put under stress. That's how I keep healthy. And of course, people tell me, well, you're only 60, but let's talk again in 20 years. That is my project. My, my personal project is in 20, 30 years to have the same level of energy that I have now. 
And I believe that you can be 80 and 90 and 100 and still kick butt if you feed yourself correctly. And that's where the millennials are going. And by the way, Bill, I'm going to tell you something. I don't have the time to do the research, and perhaps you're going to find the time to do the research because this is highly interesting. Okay? I'm going to tell you something else that is very personal. My family history, and you can leave it in the podcast. I don't mind for people to know. My family history is such that made me the crazy person that I am. My father died at 52, cancer. My mother died at 80, diabetes, stroke, um, and um, on a wheelchair for nine years, seven years of which with gangrene. I have seen suffering. My entire family has been decimated by diabetes. So I am living to break the chain. I will not die of diabetes. I will not die of cancer. And I will not die of dementia. So I say no to cancer, no to diabetes, no to, dement- to dementia. That, that is how I, that's why I'm, so, I'm living the way that I'm living. I think most people would be, if, if, if most people were trying to formulate a diet uh, to avoid diabetes, potatoes would not be on the top of their, of their list of things. Wrong, and that's exactly where I'm going. I just read an article that said that, that potatoes are essential in your diet because the sugars in, 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 in the potato help regulate your sugar levels in your blood. So actually, potatoes are good for diabetes. I, I don't disagree with you, but uh, I, I think most people would be shocked by that idea. Maybe we don't have the research because potatoes are always depicted in the wrong light because they're always cooked with oil. I cook my potatoes in broth without a, because it's not, it's, it's not the potato that is bad. It's the frying medium that is bad. Right. So now... Right, but but we don't have. You see, we're talking about something that there is no research and no data to support. So it's in it's in my gut feeling, you know. And I eat potatoes every day. And when I'm 100 and I still have this energy, I'm going to tell you it's because of the potato. Don't eat the potato because it's really bad for you. Not bad for me, but <laughs> you see what I'm saying. Well, I figure that pe- people in the Andes have obviously been eating potatoes for a long time, right? And they do not have an epidemic of diabetes. So there's something about the way that we're eating them that's wrong. You only, that, is, that also comes out of the, of the bag of, of, of information that they got from Michael Pollan, you know? The humans are who they are because we learn how to control fire. By being able to control fire, we were able to cook. Cooking means pre-digesting. So all these people that say, oh, we should only eat raw food. Well, yeah, you can turn back into an animal. But that's what animals do. They eat raw food and they spend the whole time eating. And we have had the chance to develop our brain to what it is now because we didn't spend all of our time looking for food. Because we became much more efficient in the absorption of food. But now we went too far. Because now we are getting food that is actually already kind of Determined for us in contents of, 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 of nutrients, but really engineered in a way that our bodies that have evolved over hundreds of thousands or millions of years don't understand. You know, it's, it's crazy. 
my opinion, the only way that you can keep healthy is if you cook. You need to cook and you need to eat right. Let's let's talk a little bit about true potato seed. Uh, we've 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 touched on it before, but uh, it would be great to give people a little more background about what true potato seed is and how you developed an interest. Okay, in it. so I developed an interest because again, from Michael Polan mentioned about about the fruit that that is developed on a, on a flower, and I started extracting seed and, and I and I did that for the first time in 2010. So it's only eight years. But the very first tubers that I got in 2010, I'm still growing now. And uh, and actually, Blue Victor is my first potato that produced berries for me. And Blue Victor is my hero because Blue Victor produces berries every year. It's extremely fertile. So, so if someone were to grow true potato seed for the first time, what do you think the odds are that they'll get something that maybe isn't the best potato ever, but is a but is a perfectly good potato that they would enjoy eating and, and to keep growing in future years. What do you think the odds Blue are? Blue Victor. Blue Victor is a is it I believe that it's A V zero six is the code. A V stands for American variety, so it doesn't have a USDA uh PI code, which is the the code that USDA gives to all plants that are imported. Uh, the plants that are not imported get the potatoes that are not imported that, that were created in America have an AV number, and, and there are less than a hundred. Uh, by the way, peach blow is an AV, and uh, and and rose and, and early rose is an AV. You know, so uh, blue Victor is an AV number, AV zero six or zero five, something like that, um, and it. This year, all my, my, my TPS that I started is, is uh, Blue Victor or Blue Victor Progeny. This is the first year that I'm putting all my effort in Blue Victor. I just want to see what I get, you know. And by the way, I started uh, seed that I harvested in 2014, 15, and 17. And in 2013, uh, my 2013 seed... I have a 100% germination. In the 2017 is not germinated yet. So that, mm-hmm. that again, I'm proving that uh, that uh, the botanical seed uh, germinates better the second, third, and fourth year than the first year. That seems to be. Uh, it, I'm making a speculation here, but I'm just thinking that the potato has this this innate uh, virtue that the seed could be living in the ground for years before it germinates. So it must have been grown in areas where, you know, winters would be different and maybe a couple of seasons uh, the, 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 the soil would be covered by, by ice and the seed would just live in the ground. That's, uh, by, the same, that's, by the way, that's the same with many garlic types like ramps. You know, ramps seed may take 10 years to germinate. So, so you see, it's kind of designed not to germinate immediately. It's a very common feature with wild plants. Uh, they're kind of hedging their bets, right, by uh, germinating over a longer period of time. And, and the genetic diversity that you get out of, of, uh, of, of TPS, and maybe we are getting a little bit in, in, in too sophisticated, you know, to... to... My, my main interest for, for beginners... 
is is in terms of what they can expect. So let's say let's say a beginner is going to grow some TPS for the first time, and I don't know if if they've either obtained it through seed savers, through the Kenosha Potato Project, or, or somewhere else. They've never grown potatoes from TPS before. What should they expect? Well, the the, the minute the minute that the, that the seed, um, well, my experience is that the seed will germinate better if the seed is on surface. So the seed should not be pushed into the ground. I have the seed exposed on top of the soil, and I use a spritzer to keep it moist. I I, I keep it uh, with with a dome so that it keeps the moisture um, and. And the seedlings that grow, what the beginner is going to notice, comparing that seed to a tomato, for instance, same same family, you know, so in Asia, a, a tomato or a pepper seedling within two to four weeks is going to be a sturdy plant that one could even venture to transplant and have enough. With, with potatoes, I find that the seedlings are much more weak that they need kind of baby treatment. Uh, and in my opinion, well, in my experience, and I keep upgrading my system and my lights and everything else, but I have not yet been able to produce true solid foliage on a seedlings until they are transplanted and put to real sun. So someone that has a greenhouse has a huge advantage because immediately they're going to get sunlight on those leaves and those leaves are going to turn like a normal potato plant while the seedling does not look like a normal potato plant. That's the biggest difference. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, within four weeks with the tomato seed, you have a plant that you recognize, oh yeah, that's a tomato, that's a pepper. You can tell them apart. When you're growing potato, you're saying, what, what is this? You know, it's ridiculous. It's like a little thing with little leaves that don't look like a potato plant. Once you put it in the sun, like in a few days, oh my God, that's a potato leaf. And, over, and, and two months later, the vine looks the same as the vines that you grow from a tuber. Except, that's also in my experience, those, those plants are going to live at least a month longer. The, 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 the vine life of, of TPS seedlings is much longer than the vines that you are going to grow the next year with tubers. Did you did mm-hmm. you notice that too? I've noticed very wide differences in results between plants, but I would say yes. In, in general, the vines are going to be live longer, and because you haven't started with a piece with a seed piece with a tuber that is typically six to eight to a foot, you know, deep into the soil, and and potato mm-hmm. tubers set on these vines from above the seed piece, not below the seed piece. That's why the seed piece is placed lower, so that you have a, a larger area where tubers can develop. With, with TPS seedlings, typically the, the tubers are all on surface. They are not deep. And, and often um, right. the seedlings are, are the, the tubers are, are, are smaller. I like to, to rate tuber sizes. I call them mini micro and standard and and mini is in my opinion the perfect tuber to replant whole so anything that is from one ounce to two ounces and that is often the size of a chestnut 
to a size of a small peach. That's about a little less than an ounce to two ounces. If it's larger, it's a standard. If it's smaller, it's a micro. Microtubers, I only save if I have nothing better to save. Otherwise, microtubers are all breakfast for me. You know, I, I, I collect them in a, in, a, in, a, in a large container and I mix them all. So I will have three, I will have 30 different varieties in, in one container, all, all tiny, tiny tubers that one can eat raw. They don't even need to be cooked. Um, and, and the standard size potatoes will probably be donated to a kitchen, uh, to a soup kitchen or, you know, where I use them myself. But the minis are the ones that I like to store in my cooler for, for, for sharing. Sure. That, I mean, the, the obvious advantage is that you don't have to cut those tubers, right? Right, right, right. And, and oh, coming back to the TPS seedlings, uh, very likely you're only going to have micro minis and you're not going to have standard tubers from a TPS seedling. So you will have to replant the, those tubers in a traditional way to get, to really realize the larger, larger tubers, you know. And of course, any farmer knows that if you plant seed pieces 12 inches apart versus 36 inches apart, that, that's going to change the size of tubers that you get. So the more you crowd the seed and the smaller the tubers stay on the plants. Uh, with TPS, typically you don't get much larger anyway. So I'm, I'm suggesting to farmers that are experimenting with TPS. You may have seen a, a post on the um, Kenosha Potato Project group that uh, I now have a farmer who wants to put in 200 feet of, of TPS as, a, as an experiment. Mm-hmm. And since he approached me before anybody else, I gave him my my opinion. You know, of course, my opinion. I'm I'm not an expert, so I'm just I'm just I just suggested that he plants, that he starts his seed indoor, that he hardens the, the seedlings, and then he will transplant them in the field after they are hardened every 18 inches. But this farmer really is going for potatoes that he's going to be able to sell. And I'm telling him, well, you may have a lot of different potatoes that they are all going to be in the mini size. And you may find some chefs that are going to pay you top dollar for that. Maybe $2.50, $5 a pound for potatoes that all look different, different colors if they are all about the same size. So I, I'm interested in your, in your opinion because I have fairly strong opinions of my own about what, what I consider to be, for me, the ideal size of potato. And it's so very different than what you would expect based upon the kinds of potatoes that are available at the store. Because I think that potatoes that are about one to two inches in, di- in diameter are about perfect. Now that's because I mostly eat potatoes roasted, right? So mostly I roast them whole or halved, and that's, that's primarily the way that I eat potatoes. And that, that is a, a really great size for, for, for eating potatoes that right. way. And, and, and what, what you're describing is what I describe as minis, you know, because if you... If you take your, your optimal potato and, and you put it on a scale, it's going to come in between one and two ounces, two ounces and a half. Three ounces is already too big. Now, a three-ounce potato, when I cook it in my, in my breakfast, uh, a three-ounce potato, I will have to cut four ways. Right. A one, uh, one ounce and a half potato, I can cut in half. And that's what you're saying, right? You, you, you like... You like your, your, your tuber cut in half. 
and a mini potato, which is the size of the chestnut, I can cook in my breakfast without even cutting. Often I cut into potatoes, even if they are smaller, just to see if I'm not cooking something that is that I'm not going to like when I eat it, you know? Because if I cut a potato in half, I can Im- immediately see if there is any spoilage or, you know, that that's that's why I like to cut a potato so that I can make sure that I'm cooking something that is good. But um, often if they are firm, you already know they're good, you know? But if, you know, they, if they are, if I store them for a few months in the house because I, don't, I want to keep the starch level as high as possible, I don't want them to turn too sweet, uh, they may spoil a little bit, you know. If there if there is a little bit of damage, they may they may be spoiled. And mm-hmm. I will cut them, and then I will just cut the spoiled part away and cook the rest. You know, I I have very little. Um, I, I take huge pride in in um, pride in 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 how little I toss, which all goes to my chickens, by the way. So nothing really gets tossed. But I try, I try to eat as much as I produce, and 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 not feed my chickens with what I produce. So you get to eat the potatoes two ways, as as potatoes and chickens. We do the same thing with geese. <laughs> as eggs, yeah, right. So maybe by offering a wider, more diverse uh, range of potatoes, we can we can help to uh, convince people that there are in fact other ways that they should be eating them. Right, and, and we should be able to suggest that potatoes could be cooked in so many ways without using any fat. Because the fat is the bad part of the potato. <laughs> this is actually not the potato; it's the fat. Right. It's absolutely. Fat. That's uh, that's how you get those ac- acrylamides. Right. And, and perhaps one day we're going to have people that are going to start saying, "You know what? Yes, I would like to have more of these micro potatoes because I can eat them raw." I hope so. And, and then again, you know, that is, is a little bit contradictive to what I said before that that by cooking you pre digest and you make more nutrients available to your body than eating them raw. Staying healthy is much cheaper than being sick. That That's my mantra, you know. And that kind of wraps together my all of my activities, you know, my activity at the market, my activity at the, at the spa where I work, my activity, my farming, educational research is all kind of ties together with healthier lifestyle, no disease. You want to live with no disease. That is your goal, not to get sick. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the future of the Kenosha Potato Project. So the, the future of the Kenosha Potato Project is, is, uh, is tightly uh, connected. At, at least when you talk about Kenosha Potato Project, um, it's in my eyes now a global movement. In order for Kenosha Potato Project to stay and keep growing as a global movement, I'm hoping that Facebook will keep the momentum that it has and does not regress. Like, you know, because of the mistakes that were made to allow personal data to be hacked and and used and, and, and more and more people are going to tell me, I don't want to hear the word Facebook. I will not be on Facebook. And and Facebook is my is my platform. And unfortunately, I can't develop 16 platforms for 16 different flavors of people. You know that that's it. It's Facebook. It's it. it that's that's my platform. Mm-hmm. If Facebook were to shut down, 
commercial potato project as we know it will shut down. So it's kind of important that that somehow a core group, which are all the administrators and, and, and maybe more, you know, is that we also have each other's email addresses and, and you know, so that, that that like the Phoenix will, 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 will be reborn if Facebook burns down. That's that's what I'm thinking. Well, you also have a website, so people people can find you. Right, but I don't have any I don't have any resources for to actually do more with that website, and that's that perhaps it's a great a great lead lead way to talk about the Kenosha uh, Community Foundation and 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 the Kenosha Urban Farming Institute. That these are the two things that uh, uh, also are kind of linked to the Kenosha Potato Project. So the Kenosha Potato Project is a division of the Kenosha Urban Farming Institute. The Kenosha Urban Farming Institute as a nonprofit is not existing yet. I'm in transition. So as I need to actually have this um, foundation um, built and, and, and the bylaws uh, processed by the IRS that we can get the 501c3 status, all of that costs money and takes time. So in the meantime, I was able to get the Kenosha Community Foundation, which is a 501c3 that is locally operating. Uh, they have accepted me um, as, a, as, a, as a work in progress, if you want, and they are acting as my uh, um, legal and and uh, what's the what's the word it's um basically if someone wants to make a donation to the kenosha potato project to the kenosha urban farming institute uh they will direct the donation to the kenosha fa- um, community foundation and they are going to get a receipt for their donation that is going to be they will be able to use as a deduction on their the tax return. So it's a tax return in a tax um, deductible donation to whatever I'm doing here can can be done immediately because the Kenosha Community Foundation is accepting donations on my behalf. That's great. The Kenosha Community Foundation is my fiscal agent. That's what I should have said from the beginning. Got it. So they're they're acting as an umbrella over you for now while you get your... For now, un- until I get to the point where I can actually build this uh, non-profit that is going to have a board. And I am already talking to people in the community to become uh, directors on, on the board. And they will include, you know, someone that will represent Carthage College, someone that will represent... Uh, uh, University of Wisconsin Parkside, someone that will represent uh, the, the city of, of Kenosha, someone that will represent um, uh, Gateway Technical College, who also has a horticultural uh, department. So that all, my, my dream is actually to make Kenosha Urban Farming Institute board the connecting point between all these institutions that all have resources uh, to be directed, more focused on local food production. And whatever we do here can then be replicated somewhere else. Perhaps 
Bill, we haven't even talked about this, but this is possibly the most exciting project that I have going on. I'm a beekeeper, mm -hmm. like you. So what is our concern? Our number one concern is how many bee colonies we have in the fall that will survive the winter. Because every spring, we kind of have to start over. Oh, my God. I lost so many colonies. Well, my right. goal is to get to the point where we have 100% colony survival. And my goal, my project, is to replicate the Swiss system of beekeeping. So I have to invite you into, into this group so that you can see what I'm doing. My, my Facebook group is called Swiss Bee Chalet. Basically, I have built a, a little wooden construction that is completely uh, insulated, um, and I keep the, the 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 colonies in in traditional Langstrom hives with a a brood chamber that is uh, double the length, and the frames are in the brood chamber, not in the traditional direction, in the opposite direction, so that. I can adjust the size of the brood chamber to the size of the colony. I can have six frames, eight frames, 12 frames, 16 frames, 22 frames. That's the size of the brood chamber. And the supers go on top. And all of that is contained into a structure that is designed to reduce the range of temperature. So you're not, well, where you are located, you don't, you don't have what we have here. We have below 40 in the, in the winter. Mm -hmm. And when I say below 40, it's funny, you know, because someone that is listening to this in Europe, they will say, oh, for, below 40 Fahrenheit and what's <laughs> in Celsius? Well, it's below 40 Celsius and below 40 Fahrenheit is pain, damn cold. <laughs> and and uh, and of course and of course I am I have this that's again is my my ignorant approach to things because I, I'm not really educated in this in this matter but my feeling is that the bee is originally a forest insect and a forest insect likes shade a, a forest insect doesn't like to be in a box with a steel top in the middle of a field where inside temperature probably reach 115 in the summer. Right. And that also will not happen inside the, 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 the Bichalet. So the, the, the highest temperatures are reduced, the lower temperatures are reduced, and the air flow, flow is increased because I built in a, 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 a fan that expels air. And because the building is completely insulated and tight, basically air only can come in from the entrance of the hives. So I create this super ventilation through the hives. And I'm hoping to create an environment that is going to be healthier for the bee. The bee, the insects are going to waste less resources in, 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 in controlling the temperature and, and hopefully be stronger and then and, and get stronger into the winter and survive winters better. And, and all of this, once I once I have the perfect environment designed, now I'm going to get into queen breeding because I'm located very close to Lake Michigan. So there are no bees east of me and there are no bees south of me because the city of Kenosha doesn't allow beekeeping. 
and I'm in, in, the, in, the, in the village of Somers, just north of, of Kenosha. So I, I kind of have an island. I'm almost like on an island where you can control your bee, bee populations. And my goal is to get is to get queens to start surviving two, three, four, five years. To see, you know, I would like to breed for longevity rather than to breed for egg production. But if you don't get those queens to survive several seasons, you will never be able to select. See where I'm going? Right. So ultimately, you 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 hope to have bees that are better adapted for your area rather than the the kind of Kenosha queens. Kenosha queens. That's great. And we are going to put a, a real dent into this greedy industry. Or you know, have you ever watched Beyond uh, More Than Honey? No, I haven't seen it. More Than Honey is the is the movie is, is developed by a Swiss. American-Australian cooperation. They even show China. They show China. They show farmers in China with brushes pollinating flowers because they have so much pollution in China, there, there are no bees. So they use people to pollinate flowers on fruit trees. It's beyond silly. Well, it's, I mean, I think they have more than one problem going on there, particularly with pollution that's, that's leading to that. Right, right. And, and if, you, if you watch this documentary, it's available on Netflix. It was available on Netflix, maybe not anymore. Uh, but you can, you can get it someplace. More than honey. It starts in Switzerland. They will show this uh, Swiss farmer that, that is going to collect a swarm and bring it back to his uh, little bee chalet, and, and you're going to see the, the farmer actually shed a tear because he accidentally killed one bee. And a couple of frames later, the whole scene moves to California, and you see how in, in, a, in an almond orchard, you know, how, how they, they, they go into the orchard with poison to treat the, the almond trees, and, and you see the bees dying off the trees being hit by poison you know it's and then you see how they how they process the 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 supers you know this swiss guy that was concerned about one the life of one bee and in a in a in a in a super processing plant it's all done by machines so you you see all these bees being crushed and it's sad yeah wait well it to tie it back to this, to the the purpose of this podcast as well, which is, you know, we're, we're focused on freelance plant breeding, you know, as as an alternative to the big plant breeding that goes hand in hand with big agriculture, and it's it's interesting to see how that paradigm extends through throughout agriculture, right? Because bees are also bred specifically for big agriculture, right? There are very very few lines, genetic lines of bees that are used in industry. Nobody's breeding mm-hmm. really for local adaptation. We've kind of Absolutely lost not. all of that. And, and, and in, in fact, you see mo- most people that understand anything about beekeeping, they, they, they will tell you, oh, yeah, I have Italian queens or I have Caucasians or I have this or that. You know? But the majority of the bees that you, that you find are Italian just because Italian queens explode populations and will bring in more honey. That's all they care. Right. 
it's uh, it's a it's it's a lost opportunity, but also uh, more than that, it's it's going to become a, a liability going into the future to have such a such a low genetic diversity in that species. And uh, yeah, this is yeah. a great this is a great way to try to try to address that. And and uh, I can see kind of I'm getting a sense of your vision of having kind of an end to end urban farm model here uh, someday. Yeah, where where. That, that is my ultimate goal is to have a place. And by the way, I, I can also share with you that one, one small section of my farm is an orchard. And I have built what we call a gentleman orchard, where, where trees are planted 20, 25 feet apart. Mm-hmm. And, and in a few years, there won't be any orchards like that because all the commercial orchards are planted like grapes. You know, it, they are linear with trees that are only supposed to live 20 years and then they get cut down and replaced. Right. So everything is about the, the mighty dollar or how cheap can I produce a produce to be competitive? That, that's agriculture for you. Yeah. And, and we need sanctuaries. And, and that's in my coffee, my commercial urban farming institute is something like a sanctuary, you know, where you walk in and there is no chemicals whatsoever being used on the farm you know you can take anything in, in fact often people ask me so what do you do with your potatoes you know when when you put them in storage what, what do you do do you wash them i said no i don't wash i never wash potatoes you know i i, I kind of take if 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 i on harvesting day it's raining that there will be a little bit of compost that gets stuck to the skin but I don't, I don't mind about that, you know? And I put them in bags and, and they get stored. And, and when cooking time comes, I will take those potatoes and, and, and maybe maybe rinse them, maybe not. Sure. So, so you're, you're, eating, so you're eating dirty potatoes? Yeah, absolutely. I eat a lot of dirt. <laughs> and since when in the human history we have not eaten dirt in the right. last three generations perhaps we have always eaten dirt eating dirt is part of our beings we need to eat dirt so every time that I hear oh use this product because 99.9% of bacteria will be killed I'm thinking what a fool you know, sure. we need to eat dirt. We need to be exposed to bacteria. That's how we keep strong. I think it's much easier to sell that idea to someone who's who's grown their own vegetables than it is for someone who has always gotten their vegetables in the store. You know, I think you get over dirty vegetables really quickly when you grow them yourself. Absolutely, yes. And that's why this farming institute, this urban farming institute, because this is the reality. We are going to have more and more and more urban farming. We pretty much have to, don't we? As we are going to have more and more people that are going to be interested in understanding where the food comes from. Some people will not care. Some people will say, you know what? I'm getting two injections of nutrient a day. You know, I, I'm able to, to do my own injections <laughs> of nutrients straight in my blood system. And I'm going to tell them more power to you. I'll talk to you in 10 or 15 years and see how many teeth you still have or hair. Or the color of your nails, because, you know, I'm an esthetician, by the way. I'm in the profession of helping ladies look 10 years younger. 
And the number one question that I get is, how does my skin look? And you know my answer? I don't care. I don't care how your skin looks. I care how your skin feels. Does your skin feel alive or dead? If you do nothing over time, your skin is going to look dead. It's going to make you look 20 years older than you are. And how are you going to make your skin look younger? It's by living healthier. Because your skin is the image of your health. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine the scenario where you've got, you've got a woman in there who you are uh, consulting with about uh, the appearance of her skin, and you tell her that she needs to eat more dirt. Uh-huh. I tell them to my clients all the time. <laughs> you know? And, and, That's and great. in fact, if you Google, you know, if you Google Kurtze Kanosha, and, and, and you're going to find a long list of testimonials of people that are extremely... I have people that travel distances to come and see me. And, and I have a long list of people that love me, and I have a short list of people that hate me because there is nothing in between. You know, sometimes, so sometimes I get customers that tell me, you know, I frequently get Botox injection. I said, why? Why are you coming to see me? Why? I don't want to see you. You you go go, go get your <laughs> Botox injection somewhere else. I don't want to, I don't want to see you. And those are the people that hate me, you know, because I tell them, Botox injection, maybe that's the reason why you're going to get dementia in a few years. I don't want to know you. Tell me how people can get involved with the Kenosha Potato Project and what kinds of help you need and how people can go about helping. So the, the definitely Kenosha Potato Project at this stage is, is totally on Facebook platform. If someone that listens to this podcast does not want to be involved with Facebook at all, uh, then they should email me at feedfavor at curzio.com. Feedfavor at C-U-R-Z-I-O.com. That's my email address. Do not expect an answer quickly because I check my email once in a blue moon once a week, maybe once a month. So certainly um, reaching out to Facebook will get you an answer much quicker. Also because most of the time you get 15 answers from 15 different people before I get to answer. So why not being involved with Facebook? I, I don't know. But again, you know, some people can't be part of Facebook. And if you can't, for whatever reason, perhaps you are a teacher and you cannot be on Facebook because your school doesn't want that. Well, have your sister sign up on your behalf <laughs> or your mother or whoever you know there is always a way around if you really want i i did there are a number of members in commercial potato project who are on facebook because of commercial potato project they would not be on facebook at all if it wasn't for commercial potato project i'm told so you know if there is a need a way will be found I don't think people necessarily understand when they haven't been on Facebook that you can join Facebook and only join groups. You don't have to do anything else. Anything else. And don't put any information on Facebook that you don't want to have. Even if you are on financial right. project, you may have something that you don't want to share with the world. And just don't, don't. You don't have to. You don't have to actually participate on the group. But, you know, somehow you need to 
that that is the one issue. You know, if you want to join Commercial Potato Project and you don't have a Facebook page that shows that you are really interested in potatoes, you're going to have a problem. But listen, if you create a Facebook page and instead of your face as the picture, you put a potato, you're going to be in Commercial Potato Project in a second. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you are you are into potatoes. That's it. That's all we need to see that you are into potatoes. And then please don't post anything about Ray-Bans, shoes, or, or porn because you, that would get you out <laughs> of the group in in a, in a fraction of a second. You will be banned. Um, and you know, what kind of help do I need? If you, if anything that you heard during this long podcast. Uh, rings to you as something that is interesting and you have you know ten dollars to donate send me an email and i send you a a, a money a, a paypal money request if you want to donate more than a hundred dollars or you you want your donation to be tax deductible just find the kenosha uh, community foundation and send the money on behalf of kenosha potato project and and that's and and all of the money that we receive is used for these projects and or further donated. I personally donate about $5,000 a year. So I would say that in the last 10 years, I probably already donated over $50,000 to the project. So I'm not into this to take your money. You know, If I get money, the money will be used. You don't have to worry about that. So I, I match, I over, more than match the donations that I receive. Is that, a, is that a satisfactory answer? Yeah, that was great. I, I will put links up to all of these things that we've talked about so that people know how to get in touch with you. All right, Curzio, this has been fantastic. Uh, it's it's going to be a great interview. And uh... Bill, yeah, well, thank you very much for the opportunity and the exposure, and I hope that... Uh, Something will come out of it, you know. It's uh, my my very first article was written by Angela. It appeared in the uh, Wisconsin Potato Badger, and and the guy that writes for John Deere read that article. You see, one thing is leads to the next, right? Absolutely, yeah. I hope it brings more people to the group. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Have a wonderful night. All right, you too. That's it for this episode. Next time, I'll be talking with Tom Wagner of Tater Mater Seeds.